Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. This weekend we celebrate together the 21st Sunday after Pentecost. We're going to be looking in the Old Testament at the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 5, verses 10 through 20. In the epistle text, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1 through 13, with the option of also adding in verses 14 through 16. And then the gospel from Mark chapter 10, verses 23 through 31. So as we begin with our Old Testament book, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 10 through 20, it's worth noting that even though this is a 12-chapter book, it doesn't show up in church very often. In fact, only twice in the span of these three years of the rotation. It is uh, next year, not quite a year from now, in year C, Proper's 13, so in the summer, you get Ecclesiastes selected verses out of chapter 1 and 2. That's the only other time in the lectionary that this shows up. So you get part of chapters 1 and 2, and then you get part of chapter 5. That's all we see. And even at that, perhaps still the most commonly known part of Ecclesiastes, that there's a time for everything, um, that section from chapter 3 doesn't show up in the lectionary. So what, what do we know about this book? This is a book of wisdom that comes from the Lord for us, written by Solomon. So the Lord is sharing with us, well, wisdom. <laughs> I mean, what more can we say there? He's, he's showing us the fruitlessness of our worries and our, our anxiety and our toil. And also sharing with us what is good. And we see both of those things in today's text. So let's start with verses 10 through 12. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. The first verse there reminds us that we simply cannot satiate our sinful nature. Whatever it is that your idols are, you can't get enough of them. Money's still a big one today, without a doubt. Many people idolize it, they chase after it, they spend their entire lives slaving for it. Always worried, always anxious over if they'll have enough. They're never satisfied, no matter how much they get. There's always a striving for more. Wealth and income, to us, would be a fairly similar statement. I mean, we could change the topic today in the same vein, though, to any idol. You're not going to get enough of it. Sports is a big one today. It's never enough. One championship is never enough. You've got to keep winning. And even then, it's still not enough. Consider our phones, our screens, our technology, our devices. What we have is not good enough. Always has to be the next one. I always got to upgrade. I always have to have the better thing. And then we spend all of our waking moments on them. You can't have enough of your favorite music or your favorite app or your favorite TikTok uh, person. You can't get enough of these things. You just have to keep going because you cannot satiate sin. It doesn't work. It is never satisfied. This is in vain that you fight and toil. Solomon describes it a little bit with verses 11 and 12. Goods increase. They should be satisfied. They should be happy. They're not. They increase who eat them. So maybe they, their family increases. Maybe the people noticing their wealth increase and come to them. The owner has no advantage other than to see them with his eyes, which is an interesting phrase. What's the referent of them? Is he seeing the increase of goods but he doesn't get to use them? That's probably the vanity that Solomon is describing. Or is he seeing the increase of the people who eat his goods, 
in which case he could actually be joyous over the fact that what he has provided for them is good. So in context, the reference of that would probably be the increased goods. That would make sense and be fitting to what Solomon is teaching us. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer. Why? Because it's hard-earned. You think about those days where you've worked your tail off, where you have, have really physically labored. You sleep well that night. Your body longs for that rest and it gets it. But the stomach that's full, the stomach that is stuffed, the stomach of the rich, doesn't let him sleep. It rumbles, it grumbles, it complains, it makes him get up in the night to relieve himself. You get the picture there. The contrast that Solomon gives us between those two. Then he lists a grievous evil that he has seen under the sun. Verses 13 through 17. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. There is some truth here of Solomon. There's some truth here of us. He may actually be talking about a specific person. If he is, he doesn't tell us who it is. So in his example here, his illustration of what this grievous evil is, is the man who works hard, gains much, harms himself by it because his trust is in his stuff, and then he squanders it. He loses it, and he's got nothing left. He can't even provide for his own child. And he dies, he departs this world in nakedness, with nothing. I say this could be Solomon himself in a way. I don't think he's actually referring to himself as he wrote this. But maybe he should have been. He doesn't learn from it himself. One of the things that Solomon has richly would be the number of wives that he has. I'm going to go ahead and just lump wife and concubine together because in a sense they're both wives. They just have a different ranking, um, which is strange to us, but he's got a thousand wives. That is quite a wealth in its own way. And yet, because of his wives, because of them, he is led astray from the faith. Instead of trusting in the Lord, he seeks to desire, he seeks to please their desires, he seeks to please their idolatry. They were pagan women, and he sought to support their pagan faith to his own harm. He fathered a son, Rehoboam. He handed his son the kingdom when he died because he can't take it with you. He handed all his wealth to his son when he died because he can't take it with you. And we really don't know the end of Solomon if he's in paradise. It doesn't sound like he is when you read his demise. I think that's 1 Kings 11. It's right around there, give or take a chapter. Rehoboam loses it all. I mean, he loses the majority of the kingdom two months or so after his dad dies. Within just a few months there, it's, it's a real quick turnaround. All of his toil was for naught. This is a grievous evil. What gain is there for him who toils for the wind? Think about the wind there. The wind just... It's here for a moment, then it's gone. It just blows along. It blows things away. I mean, there's the referent there is there's nothing. You toil for nothingness. You toil for things that don't matter. 
And yeah, I said it. Money doesn't matter. Food doesn't matter. Trust in the Lord. Give us this day our daily bread and don't worry about it. Don't be anxious over it. For if you do, you eat in darkness, vexation, sickness, anger. So you eat in darkness, you eat in the brokenness of this world, you eat surrounded by not the Lord, not his comfort, not his hope, but by your own worries, your own struggles, your own vexation, so your annoyances, your grievances, your distresses, the things that irritate you, your own sickness because your body is broken and failing, your own anger because, well, anger at the world for how they have harmed you and taken from you, anger at God for creating you. I mean, right, we get to that point. Why did you make me God? Why is my lot not better, Lord? And we turn against God even though this is not his fault. It is our own doing. So Solomon instead turns this, verse 18 through 20, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life, because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. So if working hard for things that disappear or destroyed, if that is not good, what is good? Well, not just working hard. Working hard anxiously. We are to work hard and be diligent and to do the best we can in the things that we do. But what is good then, if that is the evil, is to be anxious about your toil. What is good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in what you do. Enjoy the gifts that the Lord has given you. I mean, contentment is going to be the theme of this paragraph here. Content with what the Lord provides you. Content with the work that the Lord gives to you. Content with the gifts that the Lord gives to you. Gifts of family, gifts of shelter, gifts of food. Gifts of another day. Every day, however many days that may be. Your, your time here is short, right? The few days of his life God has given him. It's a gift, and we rejoice in the gift that the Lord gives. Make the most of those days, both in the sense of work and enjoyment. As you do go about your labor, be diligent. Be a good worker. You take the time to work not just for food, but you also take the time to work for the sake of your neighbor, that you may have food to provide them, to care for those who are in need, that you might have the ability to provide the word of the Lord to others is another working of diligence for us. And then enjoy. Not every moment under the sun has to be spent in toil. Relax with your friends. Gather together with the church. Encourage one another. Sit with your children. Play with them. Run around with them. Care for your bride or your, or your groom. Love your spouse. Actually get to know them again. God has given wealth, possessions, power to some. They may enjoy them. This is their lot. Accept it. So contentment again. Don't be jealous or envious of what the Lord gives to another. The Lord chooses to entrust to those what he chooses to entrust to them. 
if you have much in this world, the Lord has given you much responsibility and he will hold you muchly accountable on the day of judgment. If you don't have much in this world, the Lord has given you less responsibility and there is less to be held accountable for on the day of judgment. Accept whatever your lot is, be content with it. Eat, drink, and enjoy the life that the Lord has set before you. There will be those who hear those words and might get bitter over them because they don't like what has been set before them. That would be discontentment. Even if you're suffering, if you're suffering unjustly, may the Lord grant you comfort. May he grant you endurance in what it is that you are suffering. This text does not really deal with that, does it? He will remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. So maybe this does deal with the oppressed. You won't think about yesterday because you're too busy thanking God for today. You won't think about how hard the labor may be because you're too busy thanking God for the people that he has given to you. Thanking him for the opportunity to see his creation. Thanking him for the opportunity to wake up and to see the sun. Thanking him for the opportunity to to love and to live and to hear his word and to, to share his word just so much that we get to rejoice in and be thankful for, no matter what our lot may be. Solomon says this is good. Not anxious toil, but contentment in what the Lord provides. As we move into our epistle reading, we continue the the letter from the unknown preacher, chapter 4 of Hebrews, verses 1 through 13, and optionally adding in verses 14, 15, and 16 there at the end. Now, this is the second week in a row that we will be in Hebrews out of, well, I guess third week in a row, sorry, out of really seven, except most years we lose two of the seven because of Reformation Sunday and All Saints Day, as those get plopped into the church calendar each year um, and will be in ours as well. So we'll see that coming up. So what do we have here today? Let's go ahead and dig in with verses 1 through 5. Paragraph divisions are a little odd because of the Old Testament quotations. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed entered that rest, as he has said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. So as a recap real quick, in chapter 3 what we saw was that the people of Israel from the Exodus account that rebelled against God, that grumbled against him in the wilderness, they did not enter his rest. And Worse than that sounds, it's not just the promised land that's at hand here. It's the everlasting promised land that Jesus is creating even for us now. They did not enter because of unbelief. Makes them sound as though they lost not only the promised land, but they lost forever. So we turn to chapter 4 then, and the preacher continues. He brings that message home for us. What does it mean for you? What does it mean for me? The promise of entering God's rest still stands. There is still hope for you and for me to enter paradise. And so while this is true, let us fear. 
Let us be afraid. Fear what? Well, fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, according to the Old Testament, Proverbs. But it's the fear of the Lord that helps to prevent our rebellion against him. When we think of who he is, when we think of his omnipotence, his all-powerfulness, when we think of the, the wrath that our sin would rightly deserve, know what the alternative is to entering his rest. Let us fear so that we don't fail to reach it like they did, Israel did. Good news came to them just as it has to us. Right? The Israelites heard good news. God redeems you. God brings you out of Egypt. You are saved. There's a land flowing with milk and honey ahead of you. Why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? Why did you bring us out here where there is no meat to eat? At least we had we got to sit by the meat pots back in Egypt. Why did you bring us out here to die of thirst? They grumbled and grumbled against him all the time. They didn't hear the good news. They rejected it. They were not united by faith to those who did listen, which in that case is a very small number. It's Joshua and Caleb. That's it. Those are the only two that leave Egypt that get to enter the promised land. Narrow is the way of Jesus. We who believe enter that rest. Trust in the Lord. His promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as Peter says in Acts 2. There is a judgment of sin. As I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Psalm 95, verse 11. It was the end of last week's section. The preacher is now going to take this idea of, of God's rest, talking about what it originally is in Scripture. Genesis 2, verse 2 is quoted there for us in verse 4. That at the beginning, on the seventh day, God rested from his works of creation. It's an important little note there to consider. It's not that the Lord stopped working. Because if the Lord were to stop working, his world would perish. That was the beginning of this book, right? Chapter 1, verse 3, that Jesus upholds the entire universe by the word of his power. If Jesus stops speaking, the universe is no longer upheld. His creation is no longer cared for. So on day seven, it's not that God just like took the day off and disappeared and did nothing. Never to return. But he rested from his work of creating. He was no longer making something new and that didn't last forever. That was a day of rest and then the next day he resumed creating stuff. He resumed making new life, and he has been since. He has made you and me and many others since that day. Verses 6 through, well, I guess 7 technically would form a paragraph. So since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today saying through David so long afterwards in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So it remains for some to enter it. God has spoken of his rest, that those shall not enter his rest, but there will be some who do. We go back to those who didn't, right? They formerly received the good news, as we were just talking about the Israelites who heard it but rejected it. They didn't enter because of disobedience. That's 1446 through 1406 B.C., the years of their wilderness wanderings. Because of this, God has appointed another day. Today, as he says in Psalm 95, verse 7, a day through David. Long afterward, that's a, a 400 roughly year gap between the 
Exodus account and when David becomes king. Um, depending on if you want to count the time where he doesn't rule in Jerusalem or not, his reign as king begins in 1009 B.C. or 1001 B.C. So, goes probably through 968 or so. I mean, you got a sizable gap there, right? 400 to 450 years. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Psalm 95, verses 7 and 8. That is a word spoken to us right here. Don't harden your hearts. Trust in the Lord. Hear his voice. Believe. Verses 8 and 10, 8 through 10. If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. The reference of verse 8, Joshua giving them rest, goes back to the promised land. Again, the Israelites who left Egypt don't get to enter the promised land, but their children do. Moses, who led them out of Egypt, doesn't get to enter the promised land, but his assistant Joshua does. And Joshua takes over. He becomes the leader of the people, and he leads them across the Jordan River into the promised land. And he, well, at the Lord's direction, leads them in battle. It's actually the Lord who leads them in battle, and so they, they fight, they drive out the enemies from the promised land, they receive the land of milk and honey, they divide it up, they apportion it out, so that everybody has their own place that they call their own possession, their lot, <laughs> to go back to a word used in the Old Testament reading today. They have this rest from the Lord himself, and yet, here, the preacher of the Hebrews says that's not actually it. They have rest from their enemies, rest from their oppression, rest from slavery, rest from, well, many things. But if that had been the actual rest God intended for them, he would not have spoken of another. There is another rest that is yet coming. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. This is John chapter 14, verses 2 and 3, where Jesus tells the disciples that he is going in order that he might prepare a place for them. And if he goes, he will then also come back for them to take them to be with him where he is. The new promised land, the paradise that awaits us in Christ. Whoever has entered God's rest, paradise has also rested from his works as God did from his. His works, as in lowercase his, you and me, our works, probably here are referent then to our battle against sin, death, and the devil, to our constant wrestling with sinful flesh, the world, and, and the devil's temptations, that the Lord has brought us out of from these. He has given us rest from this toil. Not that there isn't work to do in paradise. Remember, work was pre-fall, right? In the Garden of Eden, God had given Adam and Eve something to do. They were to care for his creation. Most likely, the new paradise that God is making for us, the new heaven, the new earth, will be similar. I mean, why would he make a new earth if we weren't going to dwell on it? And if we dwell on it, it sure starts to sound like the Garden of Eden and we get to care for God's creation just as he first made us to do. 11 through 13, which for some of our churches will be the end of the, of the reading this week. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. 
This is a challenge right here. What is it that we strive for? Think about your life today. What are you striving for? Think about the lives of our children. What are they striving for? If I were to sit down any child from my congregation, you know, if I were to pick out one of my high schoolers that goes to church with me, sit down and say, what are you striving for? How do you think they'd answer? I don't think their answer would be any different than if I went over to the local high school and grabbed another kid. This is hard. We get so caught up in the ways of this world. Our strivings are for success, for good careers, for lots of income. Does it start to sound like the, the Old Testament reading from Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes that this is all vanity? How many of our youth, how many of our young adults, how many of our elderly members would say that they're striving for Jesus? They are striving, as Job did, to see their Savior face to face. They're striving, as Paul did, to finish the race, to wear the crown of righteousness that comes from Christ alone. That is our goal in life. As the Christian, as the people of God, as the church, that ought to be our goal. If it's not our goal, then that won't be your end. Because the devil is deceitful, your sinful flesh is deceitful, and those other things will overwhelm you, as they overwhelmed Solomon. Strived into that rest so you may not fall by the same disobedience that the Israelites did, where they're grumbling, their lack of contentment with what the Lord gave them, overcome them, overcame them. So how do we strive to enter that rest? Well, I mean, there's, there's good encouragement there in the New Testament in many places. Colossians 3.16 would be a good one. Let's go ahead and let's take a time to, to review some of these. I hadn't actually opened them, but I'll go ahead and, and bring them up now. So I said Colossians 3, verse 16 and 17. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. What an outline that is for striving to enter God's rest. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That one right there is enough of a challenge for us, isn't it? Consider it. What does it mean to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly? How much of something do you need to be rich? Would you consider yourself rich today if you had a $20 bill? Or would you have to have a pile of them to be rich? I bring that idea up, whether it's cash or if it's possessions or, or whatever it is, in the worldly sense, because think of it in the spiritual sense. Think of it in the sense of your faith. It is not dwelling richly in you if the only time you hear the word is when you go to church on Sunday morning. It's not to say the word of Christ isn't dwelling in you, but it's not dwelling in you richly. It's not abundant. It's not abounding. Be in his word every day. That's how the word of Christ dwells in you richly, right? Read it. Treasure it. Pray it. Memorize it. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. So, the one another thing? This brings us to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, which are a good one for us to consider in this context as well. So let me share those with you. We will have them in, well, that final Hebrews reading, five weeks out Four weeks out? Yeah, four weeks out. 
Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Gather as the church, not neglecting to meet together. Come together as God's people. Encourage one another. Build one another up. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. How does that strive to enter God's rest? Well, it puts the word of God in your in your mouth. It has you declaring it. It has you praising the Lord each and every day instead of praising whatever your idols may be of your, your sinful heart. Thankfulness in your hearts to God, that helps replace that, right? We talked about contentment with the Old Testament reading. One of the best ways to battle contentment, discontentment, one of the best ways to be content is to give God thanks. Make a list of things to be thankful for. Thank you, God, for this day, even if it's an awful day. Thank you, God, for food. Thank you, God, for my family. Thank you for my wife. Thank you for my children. Thank you for my job. Thank you for the vehicle that gets me to my job and back again. Thank you for my neighbor. Thank you for, you you know, make the list go on and on and on and just stop and thank God for what he gives you. Colossians 3, 16 and 17. Whatever you do, do it all in the name of Jesus. We're not here to live for ourselves. If you're here to live for yourself, you won't enter his rest. I know that's a a harsh way to just bluntly say it, but it's the truth. The Israelites lived for themselves. They didn't enter God's rest. We are taught the opposite in the New Testament. In the very words of Christ himself, we are taught such things. Hear what Jesus says in chapter 10 of Matthew, verses 34 to 39. Do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be of those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What are you striving for? If you want to enter paradise, what does Jesus say there? Lose this life. Lay it down. Give it up. Live it for him, not for you. Because if you live this life for you, whoever finds his life will lose it. This is a challenge to us. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Who are we living for? What are we striving for? The word of God is living and active. That takes us to Revelation chapter 1, verse 16, that the the word of God is the sword that comes from the mouth of Jesus. Interesting picture, right? But what does a sword do? A sword divides, it cuts, it, it, well, It does the battle. And so here the sword, the word of God, the word that comes from the mouth of Jesus, pierces, it divides. We think of how the Lord uses his word, his sword, to convict us of our sins, to cut us to the heart. That we may know the depth of what we've done, that we may repent and confess. And then in that sense, the other edge of the sword is the healing that comes from the gospel. That two-edged sword idea is often discussed as law and gospel. There's a connection here to Luke 12, verse 51, that Jesus said he did not come to bring peace but division. We just heard a bit of that in the Matthew reading from chapter 10 as well. This sword... This living and active sword, because it is the word of God, it is Jesus.
It discerns the thoughts and intentions of our heart. That gets immediately into the next section. No creature is hidden from his sight. You cannot hide your your sin from God. It doesn't happen. We think we can right now, right? Oftentimes, we think if we do a deed in the darkness, no one will know. That we can hide our crime. That we can hide in the darkness of our room our addiction to pornography. Whatever it may be. But you can't. No creature is hidden from his sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account that him is God. He sees all. He knows all. Now that giving of an account, what does that look like? We're not really sure, thanks to the next verse. Thanks to Jesus, our high priest. If it weren't for Jesus, we actually could be pretty sure of what that last day accounting to God would look like. It would look very much like a courtroom in the sense that God would have us on trial and we would have to list off the things that we have done wrong. We would have to try to defend ourselves and justify ourselves and it would end with the judge declaring us guilty, condemning us. But now, thanks to Jesus... That's not the case. We don't know exactly what it's going to look like on Judgment Day because on the one hand, we must give an account, right? Scripture says that in several places. We know it to be true. But at the same time, what will there be for us to give an account of? Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-four promises that the Lord has not only forgiven our sins, he's forgotten them. So it's not like when you get to paradise, when you get to the judgment, well, to the judgment throne before we get to paradise. It's not like when you're standing before God, he's going to have this giant list of every sin you've ever thought, done, or said because he's forgotten them. So what account will we actually give? That's the part I don't know how to really answer. All I can tell you is on that day, point to Jesus. Not me, but him. All that I have is Christ to give. And I thank him. I mean, that's it, right? If our, if our account does have to go into detail of our sin, Jesus is our good intercessor. He stands before the Father. He takes that sin on himself as he did on the cross. And he will do it then. He will stand there and we will be declared innocent, not because of ourselves, but because of Christ. If, on the other hand, it's all gone, it's going to be a really quick conversation. We'll come before the Lord. He'll look at us. He'll see his son Jesus and his righteousness clothing us, and he'll say, welcome. That'll be it. Well done, good and faithful servant. Matthew 25, verses 21 and 23. I lean that way. Let's read the rest. Verses 14 through 16, this is what you get if your, your church, your pastor has opted to go with the, the optional longer reading. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. One of the key ideas in the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is the great high priest, that his is the better priesthood, he is the better priest than all the Old Testament stuff that we see. Christ sacrifices once and for all. He forgives all of our sins. He enters the heavenly throne room just as the high priest would enter the, the throne room of God in the tabernacle or the temple. But the high priest only did that once a year and he had to first make atonement for his own sin before he could make atonement for the sins of the people. And when he went into that throne room of God, he sprinkled the blood on the, on the, the Ark of the Covenant, the throne. He wouldn't remain there. He had to leave because he himself is not perfect. 
He could not remain the intercessor for the people before God forever. But Jesus, as the Son of God, as the perfect one who kept the law fully, he can and he does. He did. He entered the heavenly throne room in his ascension, right? He took the blood of the cross. He offered himself before the Lord. And he sat down. He stayed there. He is our great high priest. He didn't have to leave. And he can continue then each and every day of our life to bear intercession before the Father for us, to mediate between God and men. He is there to do such a thing for you. He has passed through the heavens. Because he is there, hold fast your confession. He was tempted just as we are. He knows the things that you have wrestled with. He knows your failings, but he has forgiven them. So draw near with confidence. Come near to the throne of God, because there you will not find his judgment and his wrath against your sin. There you will find his grace, his gifts for you, his, his, his forgiveness for you. We are in that time of need, are we not? Draw near to the throne of grace. Do it even now by prayer, by asking the Lord to forgive you, by coming to his house and hearing his word and receiving his sacraments. The Lord is here for you to strengthen you, to give you his gifts, to give you his forgiveness and his love and his life. Come with confidence. Know that the Lord is yours, for he is good and his mercy endures forever. That brings us to our gospel reading from Mark chapter 10. It's verses 23 to 31. Contextually here, we are immediately on the heels of Jesus having spoken to the, well, Mark doesn't name him this, the other gospels. We learn he's the rich young ruler or the rich young man. I mean, we simply learn he's a man with great possessions in, in Mark 10. And this man who refused to die with him, wanted to know, teacher, what must I do to be saved? And the Lord told him, Get rid of your idol, your stuff. Sell everything you own, give it to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. Die with me. As Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to die, even at this time, he's already begun the journey, and the man couldn't do it. So that's your context. It's all one paragraph today, so let's just read it. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, see, see how immediate it is? How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, with persecutions, and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So the rich young man has just walked away because he couldn't do what Jesus asked him to do. And Jesus looks at his disciples, follows up the conversation with them and says, how difficult it is for you to enter the kingdom of God with your wealth, for those who have wealth. The disciples are amazed at his words. After Jesus expounds upon it, they are then exceedingly astonished at his words. They don't understand. So Jesus says it once, he says it twice, that it is difficult for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It is difficult, actually, in verse 24, for anyone to enter the kingdom of God. But then he takes it back to wealth in verse 25. This is one you're familiar with. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom. This is not some kind of metaphor. It isn't. This is not 
Jesus saying that there's like some eye of the needle gate in Jerusalem or something like that. And, you know, it's tricky, it's narrow, it's hard for the camel to navigate. So it's easier if you're on foot. That's not at all it. I wouldn't even have thought of that if I hadn't just had a conversation recently. It's an idea of the last couple hundred years, Christians trying to downplay this thing. Jesus means it exactly what he says. Go to your knitting room or your knitting kit, your crafting supplies, pull out a needle. You know, the one you have to string that little tiny piece of thread through and it's almost impossible to do it and you're you're like sitting there with this needle up by your face and trying to poke that little string through there. That one, that needle, try to fit a camel through it. You can't do it. That's the point. And Jesus declares that himself in verse 27, with man it is impossible. It is not possible for a camel to go through a needle. It is not possible for a man to enter the kingdom of God. Point blank, that's what he's saying, and he means it. The disciples are exceedingly astonished, and they ask, who can be saved? Jesus, if this is true, who who can enter? Who can be saved? And that's where he says it's impossible. But you got to get the picture here. What's going on? What's their, what, are, what are they thinking? Why are they so astonished that Jesus says this? Note that their amazement is caused because Jesus is not speaking about the poor. He's speaking about those who have lots of stuff. That helps, to, helps us understand what it is he's getting at, what it is they're getting at, actually. So the disciples, remember, the disciples do not expect a Messiah who's going to die and rise again. As we've seen the, what are we at, two out of the three passion account predictions of Jesus that he'll die and rise at this point. They don't see their Messiah in that way. They're not expecting a Messiah to do that. They expect a Messiah who's going to bring in a new kingdom here. They expect this Messiah, this Christ, to conquer the Roman Empire, to give them a new throne, a new kingdom, to be that military champion that they're used to from the Old Testament stories that they've grown up with, like the book of Judges. They want one of those. So Jesus... This rich man just came up to you. He had everything. I mean, you need an army. This man could feed them with all his wealth. This man could buy the armor. This man could buy the swords. Surely, surely this man can be in the kingdom. No. No, this man cannot be in the kingdom. You cannot enter the kingdom of God with wealth. It doesn't make you worthy. Contrast this now, right? We go backwards in the text, back to earlier in chapter 10, when Jesus brought a little child before them. Do you remember verses, what was it, 13 through 16, two weekends ago in worship? They were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Two verses later, as he was setting out on his journey for Jerusalem, the rich man comes. See the picture? See the connection? The disciples, they know they're getting ready to go to Jerusalem. They know they're preparing for this trip, but they think they're preparing for an entirely different event than what's about to happen. They think they're preparing for battle. And so the rich man, yes, he's in. The the child, the children, no. The, the master has no time for these. The master has no place for these. These do not benefit the kingdom. The child cannot wield the sword against the Roman soldier. They're of no use. Keep the children at home. Do not bring them to the master. We don't have time for this. We're going to war. Do you see the distinct picture that the disciples have versus the distinct picture that Jesus has about what the kingdom is? So instead, Jesus tells them no. You must receive the kingdom like a child. Children do not do anything to earn a kingdom. 
Children don't do anything, even within their own house, to earn their meal. It is all gift. They aren't worth anything in that way. They don't bring anything to the family. They don't bring value. They don't bring income. They don't work for it. They can't put the roof over the head. It's all provided for them. It's all given to them. And this is the way it is with the kingdom of God. You cannot earn it. You cannot be strong enough to enter the kingdom. You cannot make enough wealth to enter the kingdom. You can't buy your way in. The angels don't need you to buy them armor and weapons to fight against the demons as if you even could. No weapon you can buy with your hands has any power against a demon. God will provide. God does provide. Enter the kingdom. Not as a, a man who's earned it, but as one who knows it's a gift. It is everything and anything. It is a gift in every way. With man, it is impossible, but not with God. You cannot enter on your own, but God can bring you in. And if you are a Christian, he has brought you in. He has poured out his spirit upon you. He has claimed you as his own child. He has made you his. Not by your own doing, right? This is Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Remember those? It is not by your works, lest no man should boast. We are saved by grace through faith. It is a gift of God. All things are possible with God. That's a reference to salvation here. It is not impossible for God to save man. The disciples still don't get it, right? Verse 28, Peter began to say, notice began, Jesus will cut him off. Peter began to say, see, we have left everything and followed you. What's he doing? Look how great we are, Master. Maybe that rich man can't get in, but but surely us, right? We gave up everything. Look, we're here. We're your soldiers. We're ready to fight. They don't get it. Jesus is patient. Truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children's or land for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children's and lands and persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus here acknowledges that people will lose, right? For the sake of the gospel, for the sake of following Christ, people will lose in this world. You will lose your family. Jesus has said this. He has not come to bring peace but a sword. There will be divisions in households. Families will reject one another because of Jesus. We see that a lot in culture today, especially Muslim culture, Islamic culture. If somebody believes in Christ, they are expelled from the family, or worse, they, they try to kill them. Lands, too? I mean, not only do you give up family, but you might have to give up your land. Yeah. Taken away. Seized. We saw that. We see that. It happens. Christians lose what they have. The disciples have, have given up, in some ways, what they had, which is what Peter was saying. So what's the reward for, for the loss? You'll receive a hundredfold. You will receive much more than you gave up. This is not a prosperity gospel. Not even close. Remember Mark chapter 3, when Jesus talks about family. His family thought he was crazy. His, his literal blood family, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers, James and Joseph and Joseph and Simon, I think. Uh, James and Joseph and Jude and Simon. However, Mark 3, they thought he was crazy. They came to bring him home so he would stop this stuff his preaching, his teaching, his miracles and such. 
The crowd says, your mother and your brothers are looking for you. And Jesus responds by looking around and saying, these are my mother and my brothers and my sisters. These, the people around him, anyone who does the will of the Father who is in heaven. That's your context. So you lost a mother in this life because you trust Christ? You lost your children because you trust Christ? You lost a spouse because you trust Christ? So you lost one or two? Guess what? You've gained thousands. That was at Jesus' time. Now you've gained millions, possibly billions. See it that way. Your family is not of flesh and blood. It is not shared blood that makes you family. Not according to Jesus. It is faith. This is why I begin each and every one of my sermons when I preach, Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, I want you to remember who you are. You're a family. The people you gather with in church, that's your family. So gather together. You haven't lost family. You have gained so much family. You lost your land? Well, you'll inherit the earth. Right? That's the promise. As you go to the Beatitudes, we're going to go to the Beatitudes here in a little bit. But it's not just that. So you've lost things in this world. You've gained other things, although it's not, again, prosperity. You have gained the wealth that is the people of God, and you have gained, well, the the promise that is that the earth will be yours, that you will reign over it with Christ in paradise forevermore. But you have also gained persecution. Notice that, that the devil will attack you afresh. You were lost and the devil reveled in it. He didn't have to fight against you because you were already destroyed. But now that you have been rescued, now that you have been redeemed in Christ, you are the devil's enemy. It's like you've got a target on you. And he will attack, his demons will attack, the world will attack, your own sinful flesh will still attack too, trying to strip you away from Christ. Persecution is part of what you gain when you become a Christian. It's the words of Jesus himself. You will receive it a hundredfold. But in the time to come, you will gain life. So there are things that you gain in this time. Some good, some bad. But in the time to come, you gain life that never ends. family that never ends, an inheritance that never ends. Verse 31, the end of the text, the end of our week. Many who are first will be last, the last first. This is actually a difficult phrase, and it shows up several times in in a different context, too, in, in Mark's gospel. Not different context, just different words. Like, he says it in different ways. Are you still in? That's the part that's difficult. So the first will be last. Does last mean they're still in the kingdom, or does it mean they're out? If you're talking about first will be last, last, and it will be first as they are still in, then you're looking at greatness in God's kingdom, um, and greatness being different than it is in our own mindset. So you think of the disciples back in chapter 9. And what they were arguing about as they were on the road with Jesus. And he apparently just ignored them. <laughs> they, they come together finally. And Jesus wants to know, what were you discussing on the way? Verse 33 through 35, they were kept silent for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. So the verse 31 here in Mark 10 could be that that line of thinking, that the first will be last, but they're still in. The one who thought he was greatest in this world, the Lord saved him, but he's not greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He's the least, but he's still in. And the one who was last, the one who the world kind of frowned upon and spat upon, that guy who was you know willing to serve everyone and willing to be rolled on by everyone, um, in, in his meekness and his humility, he was willing to have people take advantage of him and his stuff. 
He didn't cling to it. He was willing to give it all, even the coat on his back. That guy will be first. He was servant of all. He is seen as the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, which ultimately is a reference to Jesus himself, who did that very thing and gave everything of himself for us, became servant of all on the cross, giving his life as a ransom for many. The Beatitudes fit this from Matthew chapter 5 quite well. I mean, verses 3 through 12, just roll through them. I'll just cover the first few. Blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, that's the last becoming first, right? They're poor, and yet they get the world. Theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are those who mourn, they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meekness is the, the willingness to allow yourself to be I said rolled over before, I mean, pushed around. To lay down power, to lay down authority, to lay down the right to revenge and to instead forgive. That guy. He inherits the earth. He looks like nobody here, but he gets the earth. First will be last, last will be first. Still in the kingdom, that's a possibility. The other way to take the text here... Maybe they're not. So the first would be like the Pharisees in that rich man who thought that they were so great, and now they're out. They're out of the kingdom altogether. But then the last, the sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the little children, the ones who the disciples thought were worthless to the kingdom, and so did those first ones, they're in. The last will be first. You can take this this in either direction, both of those statements would be true. So it's hard to know necessarily exactly which referent the Lord might have in this particular spot. But it is a truth. Challenging text. In some ways matches the challenge of the epistle text to let us strive to enter that rest. We can't get in on our own. But the Lord is gracious. He is merciful. He forgives our sins. He welcomes us into his kingdom. And so our striving to enter that rest comes by trusting in him, relying on him, leaning on him, giving ourselves to him, and living this life not for ourselves. But to be great, we must be last, servant of all. (laughs) 